the year 2008, archaeologists in Poland discovered a 400-year-old cemetery, containing over 200 set of remains. It was, however, the grave of four individuals that stood out. In these four graves, sickles were found placed around the neck and other parts of the body, presumably to prevent the corpses from rising back up. Why did they believe that people could come back from the dead? And what drove them to such lengths to prevent people from being able to walk out of their grave? My name is Maartje, and you are listening to Biographies of the Wicked. As with many archaeological finds, it gives us as many answers as it does questions. Why do people put sickles over the bodies of the dead? And why, out of all of those hundreds of graves, just those four individuals? Leslie Gregorica from the University of South Alabama proposed in 2014 that these burials could be an example of apotropaic funerary rites which is a traditional burial practice that aims to prevent evil. In this case, they proposed that the evil that was trying to be avoided was the possibility of the people to become vampires. Many of us know what vampires are through movies like Twilight or through books like the famous Dracula by Bram Stoker. One thing all stories about vampires have in common is that vampires need to drink human blood to stay alive. Besides that, many aspects of the vampire change according to who is telling the story. For example, sometimes vampires are characterized by pointy ears or the inability to walk in the sunlight. Sometimes you can spot a vampire because they cast no reflection or shadow. But scary stories and horror movies are just today's example of how vampires are portrayed. Telling stories about blood-sucking creatures of the night is not something new or unusual. The belief or the fear in creatures like the vampire goes as far back as ancient Greece. During this time, stories were told about a creature that would roam at night enter your house and drink your blood. Still, it was only around the 18th century that the name vampire surfaces for the first time. It was not long before almost all of Europe and North America was enthralled by the vampire. As the knowledge of medicine is not as broad as it is now, Many things were left to folklore to explain events. Vampirism stems from the need to explain diseases, like porphyria, with one of the main symptoms being sensitive to sunlight. But there was one illness that was associated with vampirism more than any other, and that illness is tuberculosis. Tuberculosis is an infection that is most often found in the lung. The symptoms of tuberculosis included pale skin, red eyes and coughing up blood. In the 1730s in England, tuberculosis was known under another name, consumption. 
Consumption became a widespread plague, terrorizing thousands of families for a very long time. One of them was the Brown family. It was during the cold months of December in 1882 that the first symptoms started to show. It started out slowly, like always. A few coughs here and there. Nothing unusual for the time of the year with the sharp, cold air outside. We do not know how long it took for them to suspect the worst. Was it simply the unending coughs that had lasted for a few days? Or did they become wary when the coughs lasted a week, two, three weeks? Or was it at the moment the mother, Mary Eliza, was coughing up blood and stopped eating that they knew that there was something horribly wrong? We do not know. What we do know, however, was that sadly Mary Eliza did not make it and died that same year. Losing a mother and a wife is undoubtedly extremely hard, and the family tried to pick up their lives after such a terrible loss. It was not long, however, that consumption would point out its next victim. Mary Olive, the oldest daughter, died at the age of just 20 years old. We get insight into the last moments of Mary Olive through an obituary from the local newspaper, which says, quote, The last few hours she lived was of great suffering, yet her fate was firm, and she was ready for change. End quote. Losing a mother and a daughter to the same disease was as difficult as it was terrifying. If already two died, is there going to be someone else next? For 10 years, the answer, at least for the Brown family, was no. Well, yes, Edwin, the son, became ill, but the doctor prescribed him the usual medication, fresh air. And Edwin moved to Colorado Springs in the hopes that the climate would help him get better. And it did. Years after the first symptoms of tuberculosis, Edwin was walking around healthy. Back home, the Brown family tried to get back to their everyday chores, and for quite some time things were, dare I say it, relatively normal and quiet for 10 years. After those 10 years passed, the Brown family, yet again, fell apart due to consumption. Mercy Lena was young when her mother and sister died, and now, ten years later, she was suffering the same fate. She was on her deathbed when the family got further bad news. Edwin, the son who left for Colorado Springs, was taking a turn for the worse too. The news never reached Mercy Lena, and she died at the age of 19. Edwin returned home in a dire state. The townspeople grew wary of the tragedy of the Browns family, and one by one, they talked to the father, George. The people from the town were scared for the health of the Brown family as well as their own health. 
They feared that outside forces might be inflicting the illness upon the family, and they were scared that they would be next. The town people proposed that maybe one of the three family members that were buried was not actually dead. It could be that George was convinced. Or maybe he was just so exhausted by grief that he agreed without thinking it over. But when the people asked for the graves to be dug up, he agreed. It was an early winter's day. The sun just started to rise and the cold, dewy air stroked the faces of the men. They were carrying shovels and silently but determined, they walked. They walked to the graves of the late women of the Brown family. They started with the mother, as she was the first to die. They dug for a while, which proved to be difficult as the cold weather made the ground feel like cement. They were abruptly stopped by the sound of a shovel hitting wood. They reached the coffin. The lid was raised and a sigh of relief was heard. The body was decomposing as expected. There was no way that Mary Eliza was stepping out of her coffin. The townspeople picked their shovels back up and repeated the process for the grave of the oldest daughter. Mary Olive. Yet again, the sound of the shovel hitting the wood, the raising of the lid, and the sigh of relief. There was just one more body to be exhumed. The last grave was fresh, as Mercy Lena had just died a few weeks ago. This made it easier for the men to get to the coffin. On top of that, the tension grew to impatience. The coffin was the last possibility that their fears were true. They dug with haste. And the sound of a shovel hitting wood. They raised the coffin. No sound. The men were surprised by the well-preserved body, and some of them knew in that moment that their theory was correct. The doctor stepped forward. He knew what the next step would be. He cut open the heart and liver of Mercilina. The men had found the evidence they needed to prove their fear. Mercilina was a vampire. It did not make a difference that the doctor emphasized that the blood in the liver and heart was due to tuberculosis rather than through drinking of blood. And, of course, we know that it was no otherworldly force that made sure that Mercilina was not yet decomposed. It was just simply the fact that she had died not long ago and that she was buried in the cold ground, which kept her remains intact longer. The men, however, were convinced. And they took out the heart and liver of Mercilina and burned it. The ashes were collected and the man sat away. To the Brown family. At the farm of the Brown family, the ashes were mixed with water. The mixture was given to Edwin. Drink it, they said, and he did. It is easy to see this as cruel or unhuman. 
to feed him the ashes of his sister. But it is important to not forget that the world was not always as we know it to be. I will not say it's better or worse, it was just different. And I like to think that the people genuinely cared for the family, and they wanted to do the best they could. It is always painful to learn that sometimes doing your best is just simply not good enough. Edwin, the third child of George and Mary Eliza Brown, died just two weeks later. Today this story has sparked the interests of many. There are retellings of the story, so many that it is hard to gather all the facts and separate them from fiction. So. I do want to add that details about this story could have been changed over time. The story of Mercilina, the New England vampire, has inspired writers and artists. But in the end, it is just a very sad story of a family that fell apart due to a terrible illness. The story of Mercilina gives us a mirror and shows us what people believed back in the day. And even though many things have changed over time, there are a lot of things that are the same. Dealing with uncertainty and loss, craving answers and a better outcome. That brings me back to the archaeological find I have discussed earlier. Why were these sickles placed over the bodies? Was it really because people were afraid that they were vampires? Recent research indicates that no. The people were probably not afraid of vampires. The word vampire was practically unknown back then. So the question remains, why? Well, we do not know, not with certainty at least. I do think it was fear driven, if not a fear of vampires, then a fear of something else. Something that they believed could harm them from beyond the grave. Fear of the unknown exceeds the boundaries of time and terms. I believe it is a human thing that we have to learn to accept. Whenever an answer is given, a new question arises, and it just goes on and on. But I also think that that's beautiful. To end this episode, I would like to tell you about one more illness that is closely linked to vampires and has been the source of turning legend into real life for many. Today we see rabies as an illness that mainly afflicts wild animals and the symptoms for humans are less well known, also due to the fact that rabies is the best treatable before the symptoms set in. Whenever I think of rabies, I picture a wild dog with foam around its mouth and barking vividly. But there was a time where rabies claimed the lives of many. In order to make the link between vampires and rabies clear, I will describe the symptoms one by one. The first, and probably the most important connection between vampires and rabies, is the symptom of having aggressive tendencies, most often characterized by biting. It is not just the act of biting, but also the mean of infestation that is the same. In order to become a vampire, as folklore suggests, one has to be bitten by a vampire. 
much like how someone gets infested by rabies. I do want to make clear that there are only very few accounts in which someone became infested with rabies due to a bite from another human. The second symptom is the aversion to strong stimuli. When we look at the common vampire lore, sensitivity to strong smelling foods like garlic and to the brightness of the sun, it is easy to see why someone would make a comparison. It was not just garlic and sunlight though. There is a paper by Gomez Alonso where it is stated that quote, A man was not considered rabid if he was able to stand the sight of his own image in the mirror. End quote. Being exposed to strong stimuli could induce vampire-like behavior, such as facial spasms, which made the lip curl back and expose the teeth, and produced almost a growling sound. In a very dire state, someone could even bleed from the mouth. Furthermore, a symptom of rabies is insomnia, the difficulty to sleep. When someone would die of the disease, it was very common for the blood to remain liquid longer instead of clotting, which is most often the case. And yes, I know I'm getting into very much detail here about what happens after death, and it sounds a bit cruel, but bear with me, we're getting somewhere. When, like in the case of Marcelina, the body is dug up to check on whether someone is a vampire or not, it would raise some serious concerns if the blood was still liquid. As it could mean that maybe someone was not really dead. So, there are a lot of similarities and of course this could be nothing more than a coincidence. But it is an interesting way at trying to understand why the fear in vampire was vast and deep. At least for them. The folklore was true. I will end with, well, not a symptom, but just a very large coincidence. There was an outbreak of rabies in Hungary in the 1720s. For those of you a bit familiar with vampire lore, this is the very time and place where the vampire legend has its roots. Hey, it's Maartje. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want more information, you can go over at the website, biographiesofthewicked.com, all one word, or follow me on Instagram, biographiesofthewicked. For now, I wish you a very, very pleasant day, and hopefully till next time. Bye!